And though it looks cool, my niggling pedantic mind can't ignore the fact that there aren't very many keys. It doesn't on have there. all the keys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I'm Justin. I'm Darren. Here on Filling in the Gaps, we typically discuss puzzle games and puzzling movies, of which today we're going to talk about a movie called Naked Lunch. It is from 1991. In my head, for some reason, I thought it was much older. I really only saw Naked Lunch. My history with this movie is because I saw a touring display of special effects and props and the typewriter. I'm not going to go into too much detail here in the spoiler-free section, but it was very interesting and made me want to see the movie. Mm. It is very strange. I'm just going to say it right up front as well. This one is not for kids. There are too many things we're going to have to say that are vital to the story that we we can kind of use appropriate language, but the themes are going to be very kind of adult, and there's mm-hmm. going to be some trigger things of like, Violence, blood, sex, drugs. So if any of those are not your thing, (laughs) this may not be the one for you. It's no surprise that it would have all of those things, though, if you're all familiar with David Cronenberg, who wrote and directed this film based on the William S. Burroughs book, which, oddly, I'm very familiar with the name of William S. Burroughs, but when I looked up his bibliography, I'm not sure why. I went through a phase where I read a lot of the beat stuff. Like I went through a phase where I read I read Kerouac, Burroughs, Ginsburg, and yeah, I completely forgot that he'd written this. I have not read this book, but I've read some of his other stuff. His other stuff I mean, Burroughs is I don't know how to describe it. Kerouac is decent. Out of all of them, I liked Kerouac the best because it's it's the easiest to follow. But Burroughs was just really dense. <laughs> it's the only way I can describe it. It's like, it's hard to read. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that this was a Burroughs book. He's got an amazing history as well. He's got a really, really weird, crazy life story. As I was watching, I was, I was like, oh, that's from his life. Oh, that's from his life. It's like a lot of this is actually almost autobiography. That'll be interesting to hear then. I think that you're going to have a much better concept of what this movie really is than, than what I did. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) It is very sort of hard to follow. There is unreliable narrator, unreliable kind of everything in this Mm -hmm. movie as far as the storytelling goes. And I found that incredibly off-putting when I first watched it. No. When I first watched it, I didn't like it. I respected it. It did a lot of interesting stuff and, ooh, that's crazy. I can't believe they did that. Right. But as a story... I thought it was awful. Yeah, I mean, from from all the stuff we've done on this podcast, it's like when I was watching it, I was like, I don't think Justin's going to like this one. It's more, it's Cronenberg. It's art. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting visuals. I thought this would be a great one for you because there's tons of gaps to fill, I feel, in this one. So have at it. You did see this when you were younger, right? Yeah, a long, long time ago. Well, when did this come out? 91? 90? This came out in 91. I probably didn't see it until about 99, 2000, I think. Right. I think I saw this when I was way too young. Yeah. I probably saw this about the same time as when Peter Weller was famous with Robocop. So it's like... I was thinking that, actually, that Peter Weller just did... (laughs) It seemed like he just did cult classic films right he did this one he did robocop he did buckaroo bonsai 
Well, I wrote down in my notes here. It's like, is this movie just full of people that I've only seen in one other film? <laughs> it's like, there's so many people in this film. It's like, oh, he's in that other film, but I've never seen him in anything else. Mm. I'll be doing that a lot. <laughs> Probably. Yep. The ratings aren't bad. IMDb, 6.9. That's kind of just under where I would... 7 is usually like where I say these are the, the decent to watch films. Mm. Rotten Tomato critics, 70% positive. Audience, 77% positive. I do suspect this is the type of thing, though, where people are only going to comment if they really love it or if they really don't. Right. <laughs> it's an hour and 55 minutes. I would say it's worth watching just based on the visuals and kind of interesting concepts that it throws out. And I would say as well, like you said, if you're into artsy films, there's probably something in here for you. There are some decent performances. It is Peter Weller, Judy Davis, who I'd mostly know from The Ref. Julian Sands. Yeah. Who Julian you would Sands. know from? Warlock. Okay. But that's what I mean. It's like, oh, it's the guy from Warlock. Yeah. Oh, it's the guy from Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, it's the guy from Robocop. It's like, it's all these one other movies that, that, that I, I recognize these guys from. There's Ian Holm. Yeah. Who most people now would probably recognize from Lord of the Rings. Oh, was he in Lord of the Rings? Oh, well, for me, Indiana Jones. Okay. Uh, yeah, he played Bilbo Baggins. Oh, was he? Was he Bilbo? <laughs> oh, yeah, so he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy Scheider, however. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's been in more than one film you would recognize. No, Jaws, that's it. Really? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know anything else he's been in. So it was really weird to see him in this and swearing and just being being like, you know, just this guy. Like The music is by Howard Shore. Yeah, who did Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. For me, again, I would recommend it, but kind of hesitantly. It's kind of gross in parts. It's very gross, yeah. It's very weird. It's hard to follow. But it's an interesting watch. Like, I can't deny that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the visuals from this movie stuck through 20 years of me not having watched it. Right. I just remember them. They're pretty stark. They're pretty different. It's definitely original. The dialogue is a bit unnatural. If you don't like weird dialogue, it's a bit, I don't know, cringy in, in, in a sense. For me, though, that's partly because it's based on... Burrows? The beat generation, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's. What I mean it's like that's why I can't really get into the beat generation because I even like Kerouac on the road. Yeah, a few chapters in, I'm like this is the way it's going to sound the whole book. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. I, can I, I love. It. I loved on the road. I thought that was great. It's like you know you can't stop the machine. Yeah, I, I, I love that. But I think the idea of on the road would be great. Yeah, but the voice of on the road, I just couldn't get into. Yeah, Burroughs is is a lot like that, and it's like this film. Yeah, this is not so much an adaptation of the book, more like it feels like an analysis of the book. Okay. You know I what I mean? That. Yeah. I would say though, if you want to experience Cronenberg, this is not no. the first one to start with, which is what I did. Oh yeah, definitely I would agree with that. This is not really a like quote unquote Cronenberg film. It's like it's not it's not that kind of film. It, it's definitely, it's almost out of his wheelhouse. It's like, he's a weird guy. And he's like, I like Burroughs. He's weird. I'm weird. Let's do that. And he, I, I think he did it justice. But this is not what I would say. Hey, have you ever seen this Cronenberg film? I would not say, hey, watch Naked Lunch. For me, I would strongly suggest the remake of The Fly. Yes. Because that is really good and has the best sort of clear story yep. that goes through it. Nightbreed. That's not his movie, though. Oh, he's in it. He's in it, but it's not his movie. That's Clive Barker's movie. That's, that's true, yeah. I would say the other one might be Videodrome. 
Feel You're getting a bit strange, but I feel like most of the story is there. Mm-hmm. There are just some gaps to fill and some weird things that are Crash going on. For the, for no. For the, the weird, awkward body horror? That's why I wouldn't recommend Crash. Mm. I think that that's a harder one to get into and one I don't appreciate as much. I don't know if we'll ever get to that one for that for that reason. Yeah. I like his old stuff as well, like Rabid. Rabid was really good. That I've not seen yet. There's another one that he's recently, I think just in 2022, remade. Mm-hmm. Crimes of the Future, something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Which I didn't realize was a remake, but it's a remake from the same director. I'm kind of curious to see both and see how that works, because I believe the original one he made in 1971. Wow, okay. So that could be very interesting to see. With that, though, I think it's time that we start actually talking about this movie. I recommend it, but more as an experience than as a movie you're going to love. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend it? <laughs> I think I've said it's like, yeah, don't watch it as a as a Cronenberg entry point or as a Cronenberg as a movie in general. If you've read any of the beat stuff, Burroughs, Kerouac, Ginsburg, then you might get a kick out of this. But this is a dense, weird film to watch. And with that, it's time we get into really talking about the movie. So if you have not seen it and you don't want any spoilers, well, it's time for you to Go watch the movie and come back. But for the rest of you, here it is, your spoiler warning. The movie opens with credits. Bright colors, orange, green. There's a really strange font that they use. A sort of jazz saxophone plays over an orchestra, which is a very unique sound. Mm -hmm. And I sort of like it, but it does sort of remind me of, was it? Mulholland Drive Mm -hmm. with the crazy saxophone parts. (laughs) I think it's just a bit too close after that. Mm. Chronologically, I think in actual time it wouldn't be. But for us, that was, to me, it felt recent enough. It was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, it was not throughout the whole movie. So that helped. There are two title cards here with quotes. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. And the other one, which comes from Burroughs, Hustlers of the World, there is one mark you cannot beat, the mark inside. Yeah. We're in New York City, I believe 1943. Outside a red door, a man knocks. We're going to find out this is Bill Lee, played by Peter Weller. He's an exterminator. He's spraying all sorts of edges, but the roaches crawl out. He's run out of this yellow powder he needs to kill them. Mm -hmm. His boss yells at him for not having enough and what are you doing with it? And he kind of yells back. It's a weird workplace they've created here. (laughs) It looks like a police office, like where they do the reports and stuff like that. It's, It's totally unrealistic, just weird. They have the one guy in the back who's handling all the poison. He even... Eats, eats some? it, yeah. Like just like tosses it in his mouth, like. <laughs> <laughs> Which does get mentioned later. They it's, oh, it's a trick. It's a trick. It's a trick, or no? He just spent so much time with it that he can handle it. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of theories they have. Didn't really play much into the movie. <laughs> no, no, not really. William uh, Burroughs was an exterminator, though. That was one of his jobs. And and Peter Weller is pretty much set up to look like William. If you look at old pictures of Burroughs, it's like. 
the hat, the, the fedora, the suit. It's like, yeah, it's him. So, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like th- this movie starts off, well, oh, the book is very much autobiographical. And it's like, yeah, here, here's William Burroughs right here. In a diner, there are two writers, Martin and Hank, who are discussing the key to writing guilt versus sin. I think Martin asks, is rewriting a sin? They suggest they'll give up his extermination job and just write uh, lewd books for money. They're very lucrative. I think these are supposed to be Ginsburg and Kerouac, actually. Even the glasses, the, the hairstyles and all that. Because Ginsburg and Kerouac were friends of Burroughs, and they tried to kind of pull him out of the madness that he was going down. Because he was a heavy, heavy drug addict. He died at like 83 as well. I mean, he lived a, a full life. Surprising he didn't wind up dead earlier, the amount of drugs that he did in his life. But they tried to help him and get him out. I think this is, they're supposed to be, yeah, Kerouac and Ginsburg. Bill says he's given up writing. He's an exterminator now. Yep. He talks about his problem, though, about the powder, and they laugh and say the missing powder is likely a domestic problem. So we go see his domestic situation at home. (laughs) Joan is there. She's injecting the bug powder into herself. She calls it a literary high. A Kafka experience, I believe she yeah. said. <laughs> and then it's going to end the scene with she admits that she and the writers tried it together. She says it's good. Bill heats up a spoon. So we know that he's going to take some as well. At work, the weird warehouse place they've set up, the exterminators suggest the Bill's switch poisons. I think they're talking about using fluoride instead or something. Hmm. Sydney Narcotics enters. They take Bill downtown. Bill has a record of drug use, but he's been clean. But they want proof that he kills bugs. So they pull out this cat-sized bug yeah. out of a box yeah, that like, they just happen to have. We've got a bug for you to kill. It's like, yeah, they pull out this gigantic cockroach. <laughs> and it's a mound of powder on the table. Yeah. And the roach just jumps into it. And seems totally fine. Mm, Yum, yum, yum. (laughs) (laughs) The cops leave so that the roach can talk. Now, I'm going to say that it talks with its abdomen, but we know what it really is. It's another organic hole. It's anus. Thank you, Cronenberg. Yes. Again. But, I mean, that is also a book of Burroughs, and it's called, you might have to bleep this, but this is the actual word. It's called the, I think it's called the talked, or the guy that taught his to speak it's something like that they mention it in the film later on oh they tell the whole story yeah yeah the talking anus and it doesn't need to be yeah because yeah, it <laughs> it's got it's got a mouth and that's not even where your butt would be on on the top of your like on on your back <laughs> but okay fair enough it made it easier to film yeah yeah exactly well the mouth being on the back instead of where it should be yeah but could actually talk using his mouth, but maybe that's what Cronenberg was going for. Maybe he was trying to tie those two stories together here. Yeah. The roach is going to ask Bill to rub the powder on its lips, which again, doesn't use like the mouth on the head. No. <laughs> he does. The roach will say control has instructions. There's information about Joan. Wife is part of Interzone Incorporated. She must be killed. I think he says something about she might not be human. Bill sneaks off his shoe, squashes the bug, which is gross, Yep. breaks the glass, and escapes easily. Mm-hmm. 
At home, Joan breathes on a roach and it falls. Didn't understand this part because it comes up again later on and it's just like, I don't get it. Let me try to fill this in. My understanding, weak as it is, is that maybe she has so much of the poison in her system that her breath is deadly to these bugs. Mm -hmm. That's about the only thing I could come up with. Otherwise, it's just weird and nonsensical. Yeah. It just falls over and dies from her breath. So I'm going to take it. She's got so much powder in her system. She's toxic to bugs. Mm, fair enough. Then why in real life you would ever have tried this? <laughs> tried to put something that kills <laughs> bugs into your body directly? I don't understand, but I don't have that mentality, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's the whole point of like taking heroin as well it's like why why would anyone and he himself said this it's like it was a it was a curse to him you know it's like so you're, you're pumping your body full of these drugs that are gonna kill you and he hated he, he hated it but you're driven to do it and it's like yeah so this is just like yeah the most ridiculous thing is like shooting bug spray into your body why would anyone do that that's insane it's like yeah welcome to drug addiction Bill comes home. He says they've been made and they must leave. Bill says that he's hallucinating. He's not sure what's real. I think in reflection of the giant bug he just saw. Yeah. Joan screams for more powder like a junkie. Mm -hmm. And she asks Bill to rub the powder on her lips just like the bug did. Mm -hmm. He takes some too. I think he takes some first and then he gives her some. On a metro train, Bill is sweaty. He tries to steal exterminator equipment from a colleague. The colleague convinces him to see Dr. Benway, who's played by Scheider. He gets a sort of medicine, a black powder that we're told is made from centipedes of some sort. If you mix it in, the smell goes away and you can't see it. It blends in just like an undercover agent. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the roach also said something about this. There's a huge implication that Bill is some sort of sleeper agent. And they keep telling him that, but he never really asks anything about that, which would be one of my first questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mission? What do you mean I'm a sleeper agent? What are you talking about? <laughs> I have no memory of any of this. In an outdoor market, there's a stall that has dried caterpillars. Bill looks at it, and then he cries. Yeah, he has like a breakdown. I didn't get this part either. I'm thinking, again, it's just like the, the whole fragility of his mind at the point. It's like where anything can just cause him to break down. Maybe that's what it is. But he looks at this and he's traumatized by it. Maybe it's something to do with... Because the caterpillar is supposed to end his addiction, isn't it? So it's, Bur Burroughs did do the whole, um, what's it called, ayahuasca, that, that, that kind of trip. He tried to kick heroin multiple times. Like, he was a massive heroin addict. And he did he did try. I don't know, like in the book, maybe this is him trying to start down the path like that he doesn't want to go down because he knows it's really hard. So maybe this is just him breaking down. Maybe. Maybe it's the fact that he doesn't want to give up the yeah. drugs. Yeah. I'm not really sure. He does buy some. Well, yeah. Bill buys some and takes them home. They're, on, they're bound in some kind of... Like a of, stick or something. Yeah, like they're on like a lollipop stick or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. Back at home, Martin, the one with glasses, is reading beat poetry as Hank is having sex with Joan. Yeah. Bill seems unfazed. Yeah. As he just sort of walks in and then shuts himself into the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Joan comes in saying, oh, it wasn't serious. He injects Joan with the medicine. Bill takes a pistol out of the drawer, says it's time to do our William Tell routine. She puts a glass on her head mm -hmm. and he shoots her. True story. 
Yeah. When uh, Burroughs was in Mexico, I think, or Ecuador or somewhere in South America, he was pretty handy with a pistol and he would do a trick where he would shoot something off of his girl's head and supposedly he was really, really out of it and he shot her in the face. He fled the country. They tried him. What's it called? In absentia? Is that, is that how you would say it? They tried him and he got he did time for it, but he obviously never went back. He fled back to the States to avoid trial. And supposedly, in his autobiographies and stuff like that, he said that was what pushed him into writing. It's like he felt really, really super guilty about this for the rest of his life. And he said that's what drove him and made him be a writer, basically, was this guilt of him killing someone by accident. Well, that plays into the movie twice, so that's quite important. It's strange, though. It's a really strange moment. Why would you put a glass on your head? Because it's going to have shattered Shards glass. Of glass <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he used a glass in real life, but yeah, this is a com- completely true story. In a diner, I guess it's a diner. They also serve alcohol. It's a bit weird. But anyway, there's a young man who later we will find out is Kiki, though at this point he might not be the same character. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the same actor, though. Yes. He has a golden centipede pendant, a huge one that he wears around his neck. Everybody notice this. He asks Bill if he's gay, and the young man introduces him to a friend who specializes in sexual ambivalence. Yeah. Because Bill gives some sort of hedging answer about it. Like, normally I wouldn't be, but I'm in a weird situation now, so maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an odd way to talk about your sexuality. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And again, true story, Burroughs was a guy that grappled with his own sexuality for his life. So it's like, yeah, all all of this is like entirely autobiographical. Yeah. The young man will move away so we can see our alien-looking creature. I wrote it down later. Which is shot really well, actually, because he's like in exactly in frame of that alien. And when he moves back, it's like he's right behind him off to the side. Oh, didn't expect that. (laughs) Yeah, it has that weird tongue sucking up the juice. Yeah. I believe it's called a bugwomp. A mugwomp, I think, yeah. Mugwomp, Mugwomp, yeah. It says, don't be surprised. You know we'd contact you. Get a typewriter, write the report for Interzone, and make sure you include the tasty details. The tasty details being the gory bits about the death. Yes. This is just very weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) One, again, it implies that Bill has this double life, but Bill gives no indication ever that he's really aware of it or that he had any sort of idea of having this double life until he gets to Interzone. Right. And even then, it feels to me as though he knows he's got this double life, but mostly just because he's in Interzone and he... It's almost like, I would say, like the Jason Bourne movie, right? He knows he's got this past, but he has no memory of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Except, unlike Jason Bourne, Bill seems to have zero desire to find out where it's coming from. He just keeps rolling along and doing the next thing. The Mugwump will give him a ticket to the Interzone. In a pawn shop, Bill trades his gun and $8, apparently, for a typewriter. Mm -hmm. Martin enters with an update about, oh, the cops were looking for you. I told them it was an accident, but they said you escaped from them earlier, so they're really after you. Bill says, don't worry, I've got a ticket. His ticket, though, is a vial of yellow powder. Yeah. So this, I think, is the first time I noticed in the movie where 
Bill says he's got something, mm-hmm. but then when we look at it, we see something completely different. Yeah, because he does, he does that later on when he's like, when he's got the bag and he's like, what's this? It's like, oh, it's the machinery of my writing and it's just a bag full of drugs. That I think is the most blatant yeah. example. He also says something weird about inner zone should be nice this time of year. But again, he's never had, been there. Never been there, has no idea what it is. This feels out of place. Maybe it's a joke. Maybe, yeah. I will take it as such because I think that's the best way that it works. Mm. But it doesn't land. Yeah. The typewriter in the window is replaced with a sculpture of that alien creature we saw earlier, strangling and sucking the life out of a man in pain. Yeah, it's like a guy hanging from a noose and he's on his back. Uh, just a, Again, a symbol for drug addiction, I guess. And just like this, this thing on your back sucking the life out of you. There are many writers typing in... It's like a cafe in Morocco or something like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you. It is Arabic that's it's definitely on Arabic, the yeah. menu, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know, so I just put an Arabic coffee house. Yeah. I, <laughs> it doesn't really seem to have any sort of specific country or anything. I think at one point I said Egyptian just because I think somebody mentioned hieroglyphics or something. Right, right. <laughs> but I was like, no, it just, it's a weird sort of place where it, it seems like a coffee shop, but more? Yeah. I I don't know. You would know this better than I would. Is this kind of place exist? Would it be like a, a lunch place? or? It looks like a... It's almost like a diner, but except in the Middle East somewhere. I can only imagine it's it's Morocco or or Algeria or something like that. It's like that. That's the vibe I got from the place. Yeah, it's just it's basically a, a nineteen ninety or nineteen fifties version of Starbucks. <laughs> all, all, all these guys in there with typewriters instead of laptops. Yeah, there's not a single surface in this first scene that isn't taken up by somebody using a typewriter. Right. There's a man who comes up to Bill. I believe his character name is Hans, mm-hmm. and he tries to sell some powder to Bill. He suspects that Bill works for Doctor Benway. And we find out from here, oh, Dr. Benway is more than just the random character we met before. He's got connections here in Interzone. We go with him to the bug powder processing factory, I'll call it, where they have the giant bugs. They're cutting them up, grinding them in meat grinders. Yeah. He's going to give Bill a taste because he thinks Bill is a good connection into Benway in some way. Mm-hmm. And he's a huge pile of it. Yeah, it's a little sample. It's like a dinner plate full of full of it. Yeah, yeah. I believe this is also where he mentions that Benway is a foreign power. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna call where Bill lives a hotel room. Sure, yeah. it's more one of those in in the 40s, long term. You'd pay by the week, probably kind of hotels, like a boarding house almost. Kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Bill has an injection bruise. We're gonna see a number of those throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. He's on drugs. The typewriter appears to write on its own as he has his head back and just sign. The typewriter becomes a bug, pretty much the same one as before, except now it has typewriter keys on its face. And though it looks cool, my niggling pedantic mind can't ignore the fact that there aren't very many keys on It doesn't on have there. all the keys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even, even me, when I was looking at it, I was like, 
It's not got the whole row. <laughs> it gets, and it gets worse as well as 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 he goes through typewriter. It's like this one does. This one has less keys. Yeah. <laughs> it would be quite a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> it's like those old courtroom typewriters, you know, where they've got like seven keys or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe Bill writes in shorthand. Shorthand, yeah. Bill grabs what I think is a wine bottle for protection. The typewriter requests words be typed into him, and what he says is homosexuality is the best cover for an agent, mm -hmm. which that comes up a couple of times. It also says, be forceful, hurt me. Um, yeah. All right. That, to me, feels Cronenberg, but maybe it was in the original one. Maybe, yeah. Like I said, I've not read this book, but that's, it's, it's, it is Burroughs' style, like, definitely. Lots of self-loathing going on, basically. Back of the cafe, the pushy powder salesman Hans is back again. He says Bill smells of Benway, which I think might be possible because Bill did mention when he first smelled the black powder that it smelled awful. Like cheese or something like that. Yeah. So it is possible because he's been doing so much of the stuff that maybe it's coming out of his pores and maybe he can smell it. And that maybe the typical way to get hooked on the bug powder to begin with is from Benway mm. or in some way connected to him. As we find out later, he's a much bigger character right? and much more involved. Feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere, but we get lots of these hints along the way that I think I likely missed the first time I watched. Bill sees Joan, now alive, and with her husband, Tom. So instead of being Joan Lee, she's now Joan Frost. And we have Tom, played by Ian Holm. They're supposed to be American writers that have been here for a long time. They often get visitors from Interzone, sometimes two to three at a time, implying that sex is happening. Yeah. Bill wants an invite to the Frosts. The young man from before, so now introduced as Kiki, says there's a party tonight and the Frost will be there. But then the very next scene, he's walking. Bill is walking with Joan, practically arm in arm. And this isn't at a party. This is just at the market. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't really need to go to the party. I think this was mentioned because of a time lapse that Bill doesn't know that apparently happened at a party. So we have to be told there was a party before. And we don't really need to be because mm -hmm. we're told about it afterwards. But I think that's the idea. I think they wanted to set up. There will be a party. Yeah. But he doesn't need to go there to meet them. He meets them here. Mm -hmm. There is a part where Joan asked Bill if he came for the boys. We certainly enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> She says, this is why Joan and Tom came there. And Tom says he doesn't really like the Clark Nova that Bill is using as a typewriter. At some point when I'm blocked, you can use my Martinelli. But there's also this whole weird scene where Tom's mouth is out of sync. And they point it out so yep. that we will know that it's done on purpose. Where Tom says that Bill is communicating with him telepathically but what tom is communicating is something completely different yeah this isn't like tricky agent stuff tom is also unaware of this because he says something about i've been killing my wife for years but he doesn't know about that i only know about that subconsciously i, I don't i don't understand anything's <laughs> happening with this conversation as far as if he doesn't know about it he wouldn't be communicating it Communicating telepathically, at least typically in media such as this, would be me wanting to send you a secret message. Yeah. A type of 
Professor X talking to one of his X-Men. He could maybe be saying something else with his mouth, but sending a secret message. Yes. But Wolverine, who has no telepathic powers, would not be able to just read about Professor X's history and dark past. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. (laughs) It would make him more a mind reader, not telepathically communicating. Yeah, I don't know what they're getting at here. It's like it's it's almost like if you substitute the word telepathically for maybe subconsciously, mm-hmm. then yes. that it, would make more sense. It changes everything for me. Yeah, but yeah, the telepathically, I'm like, no, that's not how that works. Yeah. So I'm not sure you quite understand. I'd like to know what he says with his mouth, though. As like, I, I didn't look it up, but I'm, I sure, didn't I'm, I'm sure someone has read it. Yeah, would they have done it well though? Mm. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're very popular videos about bad lip reading, yeah. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he's even saying anything at all. He might have just been moving his mouth. Blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Bill, we're told is at the beach, but it's just sand. We get the beach sounds, but they didn't have money to go to the beach. No. Or maybe... <laughs> Maybe Cronenberg didn't want to deal with reality. He wanted mm. Inner Zone to feel like this movie set, which I can understand, but this doesn't look like a beach <laughs> in any way. Even the sand just to me looks wrong. It looks like the sand you'd use for concrete, basically. It's that kind of sand. <laughs> it's uh, not beach sand, yeah. He's coughing. He's pretty rough. Eve Cloquet, played by Julian Sands, arrives, says Bill was pretty rough at the party last night. I'm surprised you'd be up so early. Bill says he doesn't remember. Eve will buy Bill breakfast. Bill says something about he's familiar with perverts. And he tells this story of shock as seeing a drag show. And then a wise older homosexual called Bobo gave advice to bear your burden proudly. Mm -hmm. And then Bobo comes to a bad end where Bobo's hemorrhoids fell out got tangled up in the wheel of the car as well and the car crashed yeah none of that makes any sense to me at all (laughs) i don't think it's supposed to (laughs) okay and i don't think you could get away with talking about things this way now in movies even if you said it back in 1943 it just feels wrong (laughs) yeah and just makes no sense and this is another time where it's like okay why are you telling me this story Mm mm-hmm all this tells me, I think, is that Bill is struggling with his sexual identity. Right. But not in a way that really is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Back at the hotel room, the typewriter is normal for a moment. <laughs> Bill is strung out on powder. There is the huge centipede in the bathroom. He breathes on it. It falls. Yeah. So, again, I think he's full of the poison. Saturated. But I'm not sure how this would work, because he's not taking the yellow powder. He's taking the black powder now, correct? Mm-hmm. And the black powder is made of these bugs. Yeah. Maybe he's still cutting it. Maybe he's still mixing it with the yellow. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I haven't really had time to think about it or research or whatever. But maybe this is a thing like where the replacement therapy for the drug is worse than the drug kind of thing. Like Rather than kicking a habit... They're replacing heroin with methadone and just it's just a vicious cycle, you know, kind of thing. Like, maybe maybe it's got some, something to do with that. Back in the cafe, the Frosty Bill was a hit at the party. 
Eve likes him. Bill asks about Hans. We find out that Hans was arrested and deported two weeks ago. Tom says something about he didn't bribe the right officials. Tom also decides to loan his Martinelli typewriter to Bill, which is a huge mistake. (laughs) That's a big mistake, yeah. At the hotel, Bill is typing on two different typewriters. He's sending a message to Martin to get him out of the inner zone, saying that he's dying of loneliness, even though we've barely seen him alone (laughs) this whole time. And he admits to being hooked on a drug to his letter to Hank. I might be hooked on a drug that might not even exist. (laughs) That's how out of touch with reality he is. Yeah. But I like this as well. It's like the two hemispheres of the brain almost. It's like this scene feels to me like the right side is him lying to himself. Like, oh, I'm lonely and and, and this this is why I have these problems. But on the left side, it's like, no, I'm struggling with crippling drug addiction. Please help. I like I like this part. Speaking of struggling, still clothed and shaking, he gets into bed and wraps himself up into the blanket. Yeah, he's going through some withdrawal right now, yeah. But he hears a scream. The typewriters are both bugs now, and Bill's typewriter eats Tom's. <laughs> yeah. This is really well done, this bit. I like, I like this. Oh, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying, yeah, yeah, but it is pretty well done, yeah. So the Clark Nova says... The Martinelli is an enemy agent, and Bill's giving it all his weaknesses. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. And he's told to seduce Joan. That's his mission. So Bill goes to the Frost apartment. He admits they broke his typewriter. Uh, Sorry, he admits they broke Tom's typewriter. Says that he's suffering from sporadic hallucinations. Joan says, join the club. Everybody's doing this drug in inner zone, apparently, or something like it. Bill says he knew writing was dangerous but not from the machinery. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) He takes out this black gem that Tom gave him earlier in the cafe. Oh, you can't get the powder now, but you can get this jam. You can spread it on toast. (laughs) (laughs) They both do some of it. There is a sexually charged scene where they're typing on an Arabic typewriter. Mm -hmm. And then the Arabic typewriter turns organic and everything gets way way too intimate and weird here yeah i've got a theory about this is it tied to something in the end or you just want to talk about it now i mean i think even just now it's it's quick i think that the whole thing is again his kind of repression sexual repression comes out in the typewriter through his writings but it's really her writings as well at the moment is kind of doesn't really make sense but this typewriter basically how can i say this for want of a better it becomes aroused yeah, it becomes aroused, and then it And then it becomes half human, half like human. a so it's like torso. It's got a torso, and it's got butt cheeks, basically, yeah? And it jumps on them and kind of like... You can cut this bit, but... Them. <laughs> but really aggressively and really weirdly, it's like... It's just like... And I think it's because he's having sex with a woman, or, you know, making out with a woman. And it's like, this is his sexual repression going, no, you know, like you're supposed to be with me or you're supposed to like boys kind of thing. It's a weird, weird scene. And then, and then the, the kind of woman with the, what's it? The, not it's like a, it's like a writing crop. Yeah. Yeah. Which she comes out of nowhere. Apparently she's the housekeeper, but she doesn't do any housekeeping and she has like four other jobs. So I don't know when she would have time to come in and do <laughs> the housekeeping. Yeah. She smacks it and it gets jumps it off to, the balcony. Yeah. 
And when it lands, it crashes as the typewriter and it's yeah. broken. To me, that that was like, okay, that's reality. He's like, picked it up and thrown it off the balcony. Just as Tom and his friend arrive. When they enter, they're upset about the machine. And Tom's friend also finds a baggie of organic clippings, like hair and nails, that they say Fidela, the woman who just mm. left, has planted all around the place. Yeah, he finds it a flower pot or something like that. It seems like a sort of voodoo or something. Yeah. Which, I guess if I was going to give meaning to it, the sort of codependency that mm. she might have with this woman, because we're going to find out when things get difficult, she runs to this woman. Yeah. Even though we're going to find out she doesn't treat her well. Mm-hmm. In the market, Joan and Bill are walking, and this is where... Joan leaves to go with who we were just told was the housekeeper. That whole stall where she's apparently working and dressed entirely differently now. Yeah. They're butchering one of these giant bugs. She's got a little cloister of followers and stuff like that, it looks like. A bunch of acolytes. And, you know, she just runs up to her and hugs her and she's safe. Back at the hotel, Bill types up the report about the black meat industry in Inner Zone and how it's run by... I think her name is Fidela. Mm-hmm. The typewriter says Bill was programmed to shoot his wife. We thought you'd want to know, though Bill doesn't really seem to care. Mm-hmm. Bill throws a glass at the typewriter. <laughs> an unconscious agent is an effective agent. Yeah. <laughs> the bug says the marriage was all set up. Everything like was predicted and was led to him killing her. But why? I don't think they mean that literally but it's like it's just that was fate you know it's like you pretended to be someone you're not you're not a straight man and look where it got you this was fated to happen from the start from this story standpoint though i think i take it more as bill is totally under control of them and has been the whole time right and they're going to keep making him do it over and over again i think the same way that the drugs make him come back and control him over and over again Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that as well. We're told Joan was an elite core centipede, which I think is tying back into the fact that she might not be human, though we never see anything to that effect. They're interrupted by Tom and his companion again, Hafid, I think. Mm-hmm. They storm in with a pistol, says he wants what's left of his Martinelli. The typewriter whimpers as they try to take it, because as they see, the Martinelli is completely destroyed. They decide to take Bill's, uh, what, Clark Nova? Mm-hmm. And the typewriter is saying, come on, Bill, you've got to help me. And Bill's <laughs> just going, nah, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. I'm going to write a report about this. <laughs> Bill puts the Martinelli bug corpse in a pillowcase mm-hmm. and leaves. Martin and Hank will find Bill sleeping on the beach. The pillowcase with the remnants of the writing machine is his pillow, which that can't be comfortable. Yeah. Even after we see what what it really is, probably. Mm-hmm. Also not comfortable. Yep. Because when they look in, it's just nothing but drug paraphernalia. Yeah. They've taken Bill's book that he's been working on, Naked Lunch, and shown it around to publishers. They've got publishers interested. So they really work hard to try and help him. Yeah. At the hotel, Bill says he never saw these pages before. They even tried to read it to him, and he's like, sounds great, but I didn't write that. Mm-hmm. I don't know who wrote that. But I think from your viewpoint, he did write this and just doesn't remember it. Yeah, yeah, he was just high at the time. The, the reports 
are becoming this story. Right. Yeah. And supposedly, yeah, I mean, like, Ginsburg and Kerouac, they're in Interzone because they kind of went along with Burroughs at first. Like, maybe we'll try some LSD and some drugs and we'll see if that helps her writing. They did go down that path and then they kind of backed off. And it's like, that's what they're doing in this scene is like, they're in Interzone with him, which is, I guess, the drug state, I'm going to call it. They're like, nah, man, we're going home. And it's like... It's kind of heartfelt. This this whole scene is kind of heartfelt. It's like, just please finish your book and please come back to us. It's really, I, I really appreciated this whole scene. It felt genuine. I, it felt like the most genuine thing in the whole film, to be honest, for me. I think I'd probably agree. I think as well, some of the things that are happening here, like, oh, we sent your book off, mm-hmm. they're interested, means that they've actually been interacting with him more than we've been shown. Right. That that all seems to have faded in bill's memory he Mm. has no idea of what was going on yeah at the bus terminal bill says inner zone is a good place hey you guys should stay and work it's really cheap to live here Mm. they leave now you're all right bye (laughs) saying stay and finish the book but then you should return to us he says i'll be okay the zone takes care of itself Immediately cut to him stumbling in an alley. (laughs) (laughs) He looks drunk. Kiki finds him. Bill cries and says he worries that he won't see his friends again. Even though for us, that happened about two seconds ago. Yeah. Maybe more time has passed and we don't know. But it feels weird to do this in the movie. Mm -hmm. Kiki wants Bill to take him home because he says he has no place to go. I have no home anymore. We'll fix the typewriter. So they go to this weird shop in the market that can fix anything. They put the broken pieces of the Martinelli into fire, and it comes out as a molten flaming mugwump head. Yeah, I was not expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) In the hotel, Bill looks clean, looks the best we've seen him in a long time. He's typing in this alien head the Teeth are the keys, I guess. Yeah, he's got his fingers right right into the mouth. Mm -hmm. The head projects some sort of tubes which extend and ooze. We find out later he says that these heads give out two different types of hallucinogens when they like what you're typing. Yeah. We're going to see Bill move to a different part of the room and then the alien creature becomes whole. Says that the Clark Nova is still in the hands of the enemy. Says, Bill could be in the CIA. You've got the right mentality for it. <laughs> like, well, I think they want somebody who's a bit more reliable than Bill has been through the entire movie. Yeah. Bill milks the alien head into his cup and he drinks it. He is told that Benway is behind Interzone Inc. Bill thanks Kiki, who's been sleeping in bed throughout all of this part, <laughs> I guess, for helping him get a simpatico writing machine. That was his word, simpatico. Mm-hmm. When we get the reality of it, it is a typewriter. It seems to have been welded back together, which is pretty impressive if they actually took a (laughs) broken typewriter and fixed it. We have a scene in Eve's very large red car. Yeah. Where Kiki and Bill are with him. And this is where Bill tells that story of a man teaching his butt to speak. And then the butt basically takes over the whole body. This is another, you said, William Burroughs story. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't think it really has a place here. It kind of stops any sort of momentum we had. Yeah, it's a weird thing just to shoehorn in there. I, I feel like maybe 
I don't know. It, I think it's a metaphor for the creative process. I think that, that was the whole point of the thing is that you start talking out your butt, but then you start to believe that and then it becomes, it becomes something. And then that becomes the art and you get behind it and then, and then it takes over. It's like, yeah, okay. But I don't know. I think you could tell the story a bit better <laughs> than a talking bowl. Well, but also I just feel like it doesn't really fit here in the movie. I think. Yes, if you're just looking for this as art, but this is very much telling, not showing. It's yeah, not it, what I want it stops the story dead, doesn't it? It yeah. really does. Yeah, it stops the story dead, but not in a good way. Like I think in like Blue Velvet, when when um, Dennis Hopper starts telling his stories, this is like when Dennis Hopper is in the, is in the car and he's talking to um, Kyle, whatever his name is. It's like that makes sense for that part of the story, but in here, it's like just like okay, everything stop. Let's listen to this story now. It doesn't really have much to do with anything. We're going to be at Eve's home. Kiki is getting along with a red parrot. Kiki's jumpy around Eve's. He senses something is wrong. Eve says Fidela and Benway are intimate, which I think is an understatement from the mm-hmm. ending we get. Yep. Just as Eve's wants to get intimate with Kiki, Bill coldly just sort of offers him up. And then we're going to later see them in a cage. Eves is a giant centipede type thing with his arms inside Kiki's face. Yeah, definitely some Cronenberg <laughs> body horror weirdness going on there. In the hotel, the alien head talks to Bill. Bill is unhappy, says the alien wanted Bill to be in that death cage. You tried to trick me. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I escaped, so now I'm going to get rid of you. So he wants to swap typewriters. Mm-hmm. So he's going to take this fixed one now and try to trade it for the Clark Nova from Tom. This is also where we're going to get that bit about it gives two types of intoxicity fluids for you. Right. Tom asks about the affair with Joan. Bill says, well, she's not with me anymore. She's with Fidela. And Tom says, oh, well, that's... A good sign because she does that anytime she's attracted to a man. Mm-hmm. She runs to this woman, I guess. Tom gives back his typewriter. They make the swap as well as a pistol. Yeah, his old gun, basically from the pawn shop, isn't it? In the alley, the typewriter we knew from before, the Clark Nova, is really beaten up. It says that Fidela is the point of penetration into Interzone, and that's what Bill must do. All agents defect and all resistors sell out. A writer lives the sad truth like anybody else. The Clark Nova dies and becomes a just basic typewriter again. Bill sneaks into Fidela's weird, trapped aliens. Thing. Yeah. It's like a barn where all of these mugwumps are Strung chained. Yeah. And people are chained to them, drinking out of the projections on their head. Yeah. We're going to see Hans at one point as well. Joan has bruises. She's clearly not happy, yet she stays. Mm-hmm. And then, weird <laughs> twist I did not see coming. I've forgotten all about this. <sighs> I had thought, wow, this is a weird movie to get Rory Scheider in for about 30 seconds. But no, here he is getting to play a very good performance, but makes zero sense. This whole time, Fidela's been. Benway inside of her. Yeah. So when Joan runs back to Fidela, she's actually running back to Benway? 
Yeah. Or does she not even know that it's Benway inside? Probably not. I'm guessing. But, yeah, he unzips his skin. When I saw that, I was just like, it just made me think of Monty Python when, what's his name? Who's the guy that did 12 Monkeys? Terry Gilliam. Yeah. When Terry Gilliam unzips himself, he's in Africa and he just unzips it. Welcome to the middle of the film. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that bit, but it's just this bit right in the middle of uh, the, mean, the meaning of life where this exact scene happens. It's just like, yeah, I did not remember that. I did not expect that again. Yeah. Just yeah, unzips himself in half. And it was quite funny to hear the guy that I know from Jaws, who's like this good father and whatever, using lots of bad language and just being really, he's a really horrible person. Like he, I, he really got to explore another role in this, for sure. He says that he recruited Bill with drugs, as he's done, I think, with so many others. Benway offers Bill entry into the new order, he calls it. Mm-hmm. Bill wants Joan. He says he can't write without her. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to him driving. He gets into some border patrol. In a very weird car as well. It was like some tank. <laughs> it's just well, it seemed tiny on the outside, and then when we look on the inside, it, it's massive. It's got a bed in the back. <laughs> there are two guards there. They're the policemen from the beginning. Okay. They're the policemen that interrogate him. They say they need proof that he's a writer. He has a pen. Anybody can have a pen. All right, then. Joan, something. it's time to do the William Tell thing so I can write again. And the same thing happens. He shoots her again. Yeah. That makes sense to me. It's like just you're damned to repeat yourself over and over again. like Or like you're doomed to relive that moment. And like I said at the beginning, this is the whole reason he started writing to kind of expel these demons that he was living with, to kind of get it out of his system. And so he's kind of doomed to repeat that moment over and over in his head if he wants to write anything he has to relive that horror again i guess but <laughs> no i didn't sell it well enough yeah well just from this movie stand oh yeah yeah absolutely and, and then the name of the place as well is like welcome to what's it called annexia yes so it's like almost like i guess literally it's like this is a place in his brain that's been annexed right so it's mm-hmm. like this is this zone of his brain that has been cut off and annexed, but he wants back in. You know, it's like... See, to me, annex is more like an add-on. So ah, okay. it's almost like it's been added on to the interzone. Here you go. You get to have the same experience again, or a new mm. experience, but it's tied to the old experience in right. some way. For me, I just... You know me. I struggle with any story that has an unreliable narrator, mm. and this one definitely is that. Yeah. I think the visuals are quite interesting, and you could throw... This is another movie where I kind of feel like it's interesting in the fact that you could throw a million different things at the symbols in this movie mm-hmm. and have it have different meanings. I think alone, the two typewriters, one devouring the other one, there are a load of things that you could attribute that to. Yeah, I do think it does play with some very serious issues, like you said, with sexuality. But to me, not in a way that feels meaningful. And I think that part of that is that I don't see the reality of this. And that the reality that we get is very little. Yeah, yeah. That was the kind of problem I had with watching it now as well. Because like, I watched it when I was really young and it freaked me out. And I was like, yeah, an age ago. But watching it now as a grown man, it's like, yeah, I do like it. And I can appreciate it. But it's almost like this film is saying, hey, did you read the book? 
because you kind of need to have read the book to understand this. It's like a, it's like an like that's the only thing I could take away from it. It's like this is not a film; it's an analysis of the book, and it's like the book brought into visual form, and it doesn't help really for new viewers to be like, "Hey, this is a film. You don't need to know have any backstory or know what this is about." Doesn't really help the viewer, in my opinion, to come along. Like Cronenberg films are weird, but they're films, and you can be like, "Well, that was weird." But this is like, do you know anything about William Burroughs? No. Well, then you're not going to get a lot of this then. And that's kind of unfair, I think. Yeah. Interesting as an art piece, not really a movie. Yeah, I, I agree. agree. Gaps for the more gaps created. <laughs>